Very important to be grounded in the gospel that those songs talk about when we live in a culture facing judgments, when we read about the judgments in the book of Revelation. And if you're following along in the majority text, that's on page 18. Otherwise, you can follow along in your own Bibles. <clears throat> Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8. And I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings saying, like a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, that is, in order to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living being saying, Come. And another horse went out fiery red, and it was granted to him who sat on it to take the peace from the earth so that they would slaughter each other. Also, a huge sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the living being saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living beings saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine." And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living being saying, Come. And I looked, and wow, a sickly, pale horse. And as for the one sitting upon it, his name is Death, and Hades follows with him. And authority was given to him, <coughs> to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and by famine and by death, even by the wild animals of the earth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give insights into it, not only in terms of understanding its original meaning, but in understanding how to apply it uh, to our current circumstances that we live in. May you be glorified through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would anoint me as your preacher and each one of us as hearers of the word. May the word be mixed in our hearts with faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, in chapter 6, we come to what has historically been called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and the word apocalypse, of course, being the Greek word for uh, revelation. And uh, this is a, a um, symbol that has been very prevalent in Western uh, society. I've been surprised at how common it is. Artwork all over the place for the last 2,000 years. I've given you three examples of... Uh, some artwork on this, um, uh, this imagery here. Uh, literature uh, refers to this all the time, both uh, religious as well as uh, secular literature, and usually uh, they're using it as a symbol of war and famine, disease and, and uh, death. Last year, Lee told me about a, a TV program or series or something like that that uh, was dealing with this theme. It didn't sound too promising, but hey, it at least shows that there's a lot of interest in, in this subject out there that even the, the TV shows nowadays are dealing with this. Uh, I laughed at a Michael Savage uh, show that uh, uh, he was uh, describing Bella Abzug, who was the president of the uh, Feminist Now organization, and he said, she is one of four horsemen of the apocalypse who is responsible for sending our country down the road to hell. 
<laughs> now, obviously, he was joking, but for the joke to even make sense, he was assuming that his hearers had heard that expression being uh, thrown around. Uh, here's the problem. When you have been exposed to these kinds of ideas in the culture, kind of dripping into your consciousness, it's very easy to have false presuppositions about the subject, uh, kind of coloring the way that you think about it. And to complicate matters, the commentaries are not united themselves. They are hugely divided. Just speaking of the first two verses, William Milligan's commentary says, few figures of the apocalypse have occasioned more trouble to interpreters than those contained in these words. In fact, there are so many interpretations of these four horsemen that it makes your head spin. Uh, some commentators see this as the fulfillment of things beginning with the Roman Empire, especially Julius Caesar. Others see it as starting with uh, Caesar Augustus, others with Tiberius. Some actually see it as the four empires that Daniel spoke about, ending with the Empire of Rome. Uh, some tied exclusively to the first century, especially with Nero. Uh, others tie it to the first four centuries. Some see it as beginning in 1776 and moving forward. I got a laugh out of uh, one book being sold right now on Glenn Beck's uh, The Blaze uh, website, where he, and this is serious, he's not joking on this one, he, he's tying it in with the Obama administration, uh, exhibiting the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And of course, futurists, they're all over the map on seeing these symbols as prophesying something in it that is in our future. But there is even a variety on who the horsemen symbolize. Some see each horseman as a human. Others see it as an angel. Some say it's a good angel. Some say it's a demonic fallen angel. Uh, some do a combination of human and angel. Some see the first horseman as being Christ. Others see the first horseman as being the Antichrist. I mean, how could you get more different interpretations than that? On the other hand, some commentaries see these horsemen as being pure, purely symbolic of various calamities and causes. Others see them as representing movements or judgments or periods within the Roman Empire or within the Roman Catholic Church or something else. I mean, it's a mess when you try to study this topic. It's just a mess out there. So I would encourage us to be somewhat humble in our interpretation of this passage. I actually changed my opinion on this last week. It wasn't a big change, but it does bump up the years of each horseman. It makes no difference to my interpretation after verse 8, but on verses 1 through 8, uh, I have had a change. Let me just explain very briefly, anticipate what my change was. When I preached on uh, Revelation chapter 1, I was anticipating chapter 6 because we were trying to look at those principles in light of the whole book. And it doesn't really change the application that I made at that time. But at that time, I said that the first horseman was Caesar Augustus. And there's a number of reasons for seeing it that way. And I was really dependent, especially on one commentator, and I re uh, repeated that assertion a couple of times, very credible interpretation, but as I dug more deeply into the text, I was forced to see Tiberius, the next emperor, as being the first horseman. And that minor adjustment, like I say, it only affects the first eight verses, but I think it has opened these verses up in a marvelous new way. And I'm gonna give evidence for both of those interpretations. 
but with literally hundreds of views out there, I wanted to approach the text inductively to see if I could narrow the options down. I actually tried to make a chart for you uh, of all of the different views, and it was such a messy chart, and I was only a fraction of the way into it. I just gave up. It just seemed hopeless. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of an idea of the variety of opinions, let me quote from one commentary. John Wolverd claims, quote, at least 50 different systems of interpretation have arisen from the historical view alone. And by historical view, he's referring to what I've been calling the historicist uh, view that we looked at uh, in the introductory sermons. And then when you add to those 50, the different interpretations given by the idealists and the widely varied interpretations of the futurists and the recapitulationists and the fact that even preterists, and I'm a preterist, right, even the preterists aren't in total agreement, I think you can appreciate why I felt I've got to give an introductory uh, sermon to these four before we dive into them. Men whom I greatly respect differ with each other and differ with me on this subject. And the question for me was, how do I approach this passage without making it too difficult? I, I do like to try to be as fair as I can when we deal with controversial passages, but it really would be impossible to deal with every argument that is given one by one. So my strategy, for the sake of time and efficiency, I'm going to use facts that we have already solidly established in the, in the past to try to rule out um, uh, broad blocks of interpretations and try to quickly, as quickly as we can, narrow the interpretation down to four and then down to one. And so subpoint A asks how John's clues, given in chapter one, verses one through 11, help us to identify these four horsemen. You remember I preached 14 sermons on those 30 plus interpretive clues that the apostle John gave. And I am convinced if you consistently perfectly consistently apply those principles that we looked at, you're going to be narrowed down to three or at the most four interpretations. So I think this is a very effective way of trying to uh, narrow the options down. We're going to begin just by looking at six principles. We saw that principle number six shows that the symbols of this book deal with actual history not simply with general principles or ideas. Now, idealists, typically they do not see these four horsemen as having anything to do with an actual, a real historical event uh, or, or person. So since they violate principle number one, I'm just not going to deal with any of their myriad of interpretations, okay? There's no point in dealing with that. I think we can just rule those out. Now, I as an exegete have had to personally uh, wrestle with all of their arguments, but I'm not going to do that for you this morning. Principle 6 says that these symbols must relate somehow to real things in history. So already we've narrowed the options. Principle 20 says that this book was intended to be relevant to the seven first century churches and what they were going through. Now while our interpretation can make applications to the present. We're going to be looking at a number of applications when we go through these, these horsemen. 
the intended meaning of the book, which is what we're always, first of all, looking for, is not the application. The intended meaning is what did it mean in the first century? It was relevant to those churches. It was understood by those churches. Well, if that is true, then principle two uh, automatically rules out quite a number of interpretations. For example, would the first century churches have understood that these four horsemen are dealing with a description of World War III and the European Union engaged in, in, in nuclear war? No way. No way. Uh, and yet there, there are authors who think so. One author said, there is no question that the four horsemen of the apocalypse arrive in the world beset by nuclear war. What? No question? Well, you know, I would beg to differ with him because the original audience knows nothing about the 21st century or why on earth it would uh, need to be nuclear war. They don't even know what nuclear war is or why it would have to be World War III rather than World War V or World War X or World War II for that matter. See, original relevance has to be determined before we start applying. Now, I think there are applications. We're going to look at applications for the present. But uh, we have to understand the first um, uh, meaning, uh, the, the, the main meaning, uh, before we can do that. Principle 11 says that the authorial intent of John needs to be considered when interpreting the book. What would have been in John's mind when he saw these images? That's what principle number 11 is pointing towards. So when somebody says, wow, that horseman reminds me of Stalin's purges, my response is, hey, what pops into your head is utterly irrelevant to the original meaning, okay? Utterly irrelevant. It may be legitimate to apply that horseman's uh, situation to Stalin's purges. That's an application. But I can guarantee you that Stalin's purges were not in John's mind uh, when, he, when he wrote this. What pops into your head in terms of careless thought association is irrelevant to the original meaning. We need to consider what, what popped into John's mind in light of the scriptures and in light of history. And I think that both John and the churches would have immediately thought of exactly the people I will describe. And then link this together with principle five, where John expected his original hearers to know the meaning of each of the visions and it immediately makes any of the futurist interpretations suspect. Chapter 1, verse 19 says that the book of Revelation deals with either the recent past, and on my interpretation it's the very recent past, or the present, or things that are about to happen soon. And principle 8 says that the things in chapters 7 through 11, this is going to be key, in 7 through 11 are soon, near, or about to happen. Well, that rules out a whole bunch of interpretations that say that the horsemen include figures like Muhammad, the Pope, Hitler, Stalin, and others. Principles 12 and 27 show that there must be some connection with the land of Israel and or the empire of Rome and God's judgments that fall upon one or upon both of those. Well, those six principles, when you take them all together, really narrow the scope down to four uh, interpretations. That's a pretty manageable number. But there are clues from the immediate context as well. When we looked at chapter 5, verse 1, we saw that the scroll was the sealed Old Testament canon. But if that is the case, 
Then opening the seals, which refers to new prophetic revelation, had to be sometime after the Old Testament canon was closed. Well, that rules out some interpretations. For example, it rules out the interpretation that these four horsemen correspond to Daniel's four empires, beginning with, with uh, Medo-Persia, uh, with Babylon, actually. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Uh, it would rule that out. But it also has to be connected in some way with the beginning of new prophetic revelation, which also rules out some interpretations. Well, the canon was closed around 400 B.C., and the 400 years between Malachi and Christ are spoken of as the 400 years of prophetic silence. Okay, true prophecy did not exist until the prophecies of the New Testament. And as Daniel prophesied, they all revolved around the incarnation of Christ and the beginning of his kingdom, and that prophecy would cease by the time Jerusalem was destroyed. But that, in turn, relates to another fact that we had previously established. If the canon could not be unsealed until it was time for the Messiah to come, one would expect that these seals would, start, would not start getting opened until sometime after the incarnation of Jesus. Now, in my previous interpretation, there is some connection uh, since new prophetic activity was connected with the Incarnation. You can think of the covenant lawsuits of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary. On the interpretation I came to in the last week, it starts in 30 A.D. and especially emphasizes the word when in these verses. The first writer does not appear to have ridden forth until after Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father. Now, I think there are arguments for both Augustus and Tiberius, but that would be one of the arguments for Tiberius being the first horseman. But anyway, either of those interpretations would be consistent with the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel wanted to know a whole lot more about Rome and Israel and the coming Messiah, and the angel had said, no, I'm not going to give you anything more until the events I have described about Rome, Israel, and the Messiah begin to come to pass. That's when it'll get unfolded. So if you held to the Caesar Augustus interpretation, you'd tie it in with the oral prophetic activity that began in Luke 1. And if you held to the Tiberius being the fulfillment, then the opening of the scrolls would be tied in with the New, new Covenant Scriptures. Uh, and that's not a slam-dunk argument, okay? I think it's a supportive argument. Uh, it's just more conceptual, a little harder to, to grasp. Now, I've mentioned that Gentry, children, Chilton, and other preterists take all four seals as being contemporaneous. In other words, all four of these writers is writing forth at the same time and is describing four snapshots of the whole war against Jerusalem. And so that's another, that's the fourth potentially credible interpretation. And with the evidence that we have looked at so far, I think it's a somewhat credible interpretation. They interpret all seven seals as covering exactly the same material as the seven trumpets of chapters 8 through 11. Now, I disagree, but I'm just saying, based on the clues we've looked at so far, I think that interpretation would not be ruled out. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move to the next set of clues, the time indicators within Revelation itself. Almost all the faulty interpretations of the seven seals fail to take seriously the time indicators given by John in chapters 6 through 11. Uh, many years ago, I used to buy into a, a preterist form of recapitulation. It's kind of a combination of the two systems. And recapitulationism, what it does, okay, we've got seven sections of the book, 
it says this section starts at the first coming of Christ and it moves forward. And then the next section starts at the time of Christ. It may move forward the same amount. It may move forward a little bit more. Then the next section goes back and it goes uh, on my system. Each one went a little bit um, uh, further ahead. But they see them as completely parallel uh, with each other. So you got the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, the seven condemnations, and um, and. Uh, we call this recapitulationism. Now, other recapitulationists and preterists muddy the waters even further, and hopefully you can keep this all in your head, but they muddy the water further by saying that the seven seals can be repeating some of the same stuff. In other words, there's no sequence in the seals and there's no sequence in the trumpets. They are all contemporaneous. They all happen at the same time. So, for example, Vic Reasoner says, all four horsemen ride simultaneously. Well, that just isn't so. It just isn't so, but many preterists see all four horsemen as dealing with 66 to 70 A.D., and then they say, well, the seven trumpets deal with 66 to 70 A.D., and the seven bowls deal with 66 to 70 A.D., and the seven plagues and the seven condemnations, they're all dealing with exactly the same time period. That, that, that's their, their theory. Uh, if you do not see sequence... In chapters 6 through 11, there are a number of things that get absolutely messed up and do not seem credible. And furthermore, you're not going to be able to adequately deal with the arguments of the historicists and of the futurists who very correctly see a linear sequence in chapters 6 through 11. One thing happens after the other. See, my, my viewpoint is if you... If you say, yes, we agree with you, futurists, that there is a sequence in these chapters, but it's already been fulfilled in the first century, then it's going to be much more credible because they are sold on the sequence that happens. And I think it's a solid sequence that happens in chapters 6 through uh, 11. Now, in your outlines, I've given you some words and phrases that absolutely mandate that there be a linear progression throughout all of chapters 6 through 11. And they show that it's not until chapter 12 that there is a major backwards movement in time to the birth of Christ. And by the way, that's not controversial. Everybody agrees with that, almost everybody. Um, you know, it's uh, the woman giving birth to the child and this man-child is caught up to heaven. It's clearly talking about the birth of Christ. But um, we must not miss the fact that from chapter 6 through chapter 11, there is forward progress. So hopefully that's clear in your mind. That's what I'm going to try to prove now. Take a look at the words in your outline. The word then occurs 18 times in chapters 6 through 11 showing cause and effect sequence and or time sequence. So this happens, then this happens, then this happens. So there's a sequence that's going on. It's a time word, okay? The word until is definitely an indicator of progression of time. The word when occurs 16 times and shows key time sequences that many commentators completely wash over. They don't even comment on the word when. They can't. If they comment on the word when, all of a sudden it makes their interpretation look a little bit weird, a little bit odd. Um, by the way, it's that word when that got me finally over the hump to ditch uh, the Augustus uh, interpretation that I held to for a few years. But consider all the other phrases that I've listed there that show real history, timing, historical progression. Let me just read them for you. How long until? 
a little while longer until completed, has come after these things, till in those days the remaining blasts that are about to sound, five months in those days, one woe is past, two more are coming, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year. There should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. They will prophesy 1,260 days in the days of their prophecy, as often, three and a half days. Now after the three and a half days, in the same hour, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Have become, begun, the time for. Those are all time indicators that force you to an interpretation if you deal with them. And unfortunately, a lot of commentators just skip over those time, at least some of the time indicators in their commentaries. Now, I'm not going to take you through the context of every one of those words and phrases today, but if you highlight them in green, like I have in my Bible, it, it visually, it just jumps out at you that the recapitulation theory simply does not work. So sometimes when you visualize things with colors, it really helps things to stand out a little bit better in your mind. So whatever puzzles that conclusion might produce in your minds, I think we need to be honest with the text and say that each event signaled by trumpets one through seven occurs in sequential history, that the trumpets come after the seals, and that each of the seven seals records history in sequential order. And I'm not going to get into it, but you can take account of the verb tenses in chapters 6 through 11. I think that reinforces the timing indicators I just mentioned. And then if you add in the obvious cause and effect language throughout these chapters, again, it shows a historical effect. Here is the cause, it leads to a historical effect. Over the last several years, I've had to work through numerous examples of these cause and effect sequences in chapters 6 through 11, completely overthrew my previous views that the trumpets repeated the events that the seals had addressed. It's one form of uh, partial preterism. I'll just give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Chapter 8, verse 7, is where the trumpets start. Okay? <clears throat> and um, some preterists say that these trumpets are not necessarily chronological. They think that each trumpet is a snapshot of the whole war against Jerusalem. So various trumpets can go backwards or forwards in time within that three and a half year uh, period. That's their view. I think the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that there is linear progress. So take a look at chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, resulting in certain judgments. Verse 8 then says, Then the second angel sounded, resulting in judgments. And I think the most natural reading is to say that the then means after the first judgments happened. And some partial preterists, like I say, are, are just missing these time clues, these cause and effect indicators. Verse 10, Then the third angel sounded resulting in further judgments. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, resulting in more judgments. And take a look at the second half of verse 13. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. 
Now that sure sounds like what comes out of those trumpets that are about to sound comes after what comes out of the trumpets that have already sounded. We're, we're talking about sequence here, not just sequence of the trumpets, but sequence of the consequences upon the earth. There's more in chapter 9. 9, the fifth trumpet sounds, and verse 5 talks about five months' duration. Why even mention that the fifth trumpet is of five months' duration if uh, history and, and, and sequence is irrelevant? That is the language of history and sequence. Verse 10 repeats the mention of the five-month duration. Verse 12 concludes by saying, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So past, coming, after these things. That's the language of historical sequence. Then verse 12 says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and verse 15 says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. I mean, why even use language like that if there's no historical sequence? And there's other indicators that the trumpets themselves are sequential. But let's take a look at the relationship of the seals to those trumpets. In chapter 7, verse 3, the four angels are instructed during the time of the sixth seal. Okay, got to keep what the position is. During the time of the sixth seal, they're instructed not to harm the land, sea, or trees until God's servants are sealed. Okay, well, precisely those three things are hurt in chapter 8 when the trumpets are blown by the angels. And what comes in between those two passages? Chapter 7, the sealing of the, serpent, of the, of the servants of God. That implies a sequence of time has occurred between chapter 7, verse 3, and chapter 8, verse 7. Well, automatically that means that the first trumpet has to have come after the sixth seal. And indeed, we not only see several mentions of sequence within the sixth seal, but mention of another delay as soon as the seventh seal is opened before those trumpets can sign. Take a, take a look uh, at chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's at the end of that half hour that the seventh trumpet sounds in verses 6 through 7. So the half hour of silence is broken by a prayer meeting. As soon as the prayers ascend, verse 5 says there are noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. That immediately leads to verse 6. So the seven angels who have the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Then comes the first trumpet in verse 7. I mean, to me, it's obvious that there has to be the first trumpet coming after the seventh seal. Okay? And yet there are many recapitulationists that just slide right over that. They think that the trumpet one is backing up in time, starting all over again. Another indication that the trumpets come after the seals is that chapter 9, verse 4 tells the demonic locusts not to hurt any of the saints who have been sealed in their forehead. Well, simple logic tells you if the 144,000 have already been sealed when the plagues of the fifth bowl start, then it's obvious that the sixth seal comes first. It's not parallel with the sixth trumpet, like recapitulationists say. They remember, recapitulationists, they got the, if you chart it out, they got first seven seals over here, and then they got the first trumpets, and they say each of those seven parallel each other. But if the 144,000 are sealed already when the fifth bull starts its plagues, 
then simple logic tells you the sixth seal happens before the fifth bowl, not after it. I mean, that completely destroys the supposed parallelism. And there are a whole bunch of other proofs that uh, I'm not even going to get into. I'm not going to bore you further with. But I felt I needed to give at least this much because Chilton, Gentry, and other very good preterists do not see sequence here, and I think it's a big mistake. It makes their interpretation of chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, not seem credible. There had to have been cosmic disturbances of huge magnitude whenever those verses were, were fulfilled. On Chilton's view, the various events of chapters 6 through 7, they just keep jumping back and forth within the three and a half years. There's no linear rhyme or reason. On my interpretation, there is a smooth progression from 8030 to 8070 as you progress from chapter 6 through chapter 11. So are you getting the big picture that we're fitting this into? That's, that's what I'm trying to establish. So the bottom line is, if chapter 8, verse 7, that's the beginning of the trumpets, right? If chapter 8, verse 7 is the beginning of the three-and-a-half-year war against Jerusalem, which all of the preterists agree with, if that's the beginning, then that means that all seven seals had to have begun before the war against Jerusalem. See where I'm going here? This in turn means that the first writer of the apocalypse could not possibly be Nero. He could not be Vespasian. He could not be Titus. Nor could he be the second writer. It had to be much earlier. So it really narrows down our interpretation of the four horsemen down to two possibilities. That the first writer is either Augustus or that the first writer is Tiberius. And there are clues in Matthew 24 that would favor the Tiberius view. When we did a detailed analysis of Matthew 24, I began having heebie-jeebies over it, realizing, wow, there's a little tension here in my interpretation. And it's finally forced me to the Tiberius view. But let me first of all show how, I remind you how <clears throat> Matthew 24 overturns all but at least these two. Jesus listed the exact same issues listed under the four horsemen, same order, and yet he ends that discussion by saying, all these are the beginning of sorrows, but they're not yet the great tribulation. Okay? They, they are the, I don't even know how you say it, Bra Braxton Hicks, Braxman, Braxton, yeah, they're the Braxton Hicks. They're not the real, uh, you know, the labor that's coming. So horsemen one through four are just the beginning of sorrows. They precede both the tribulation against the saints and the war against Jerusalem just like they do in Revelation. So that points to a time prior to 62 A.D. But Matthew 24 also clues us into the fact that the first writer can't be Augustus. And the reason I say that is that Jesus predicts what these four horsemen will bring as being future to the day that he was talking to his disciples. Well, Caesar Augustus was not future to... Uh, the day that Jesus was, was talking, he ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So there goes my wonderful theory and the theory of several commentators out the window. So even the, the, the tense of a verb has to be taken seriously, and I think it clues us in uh, to these uh, horsemen. Now take a look at Revelation 6 again. <clears throat> and let me give you some further indications. Verse one tells us when the first horseman rides. And I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings saying, like a voice of thunder, Come. 
And by the way, uh, in the majority text, this is not addressed to John. In the majority text, it's addressed to each one of these writers. He's saying to these writers, you come. Okay, it's a command that's being given. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, that is, in order to conquer. When does the horseman ride? After Jesus opens the seals. And when did Jesus open the seals? Well, we saw in chapter 5 that he opens the seals when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Well, that places the first seal in A.D. 30, not 5 B.C., like I had earlier uh, held to. Now, those who hold the Augustus interpretation may well answer that new prophecy was, in fact, de facto given at the time of Christ's uh, incarnation in 5 B.C., and that chapter 5 only deals with the legal acknowledgement that Jesus has overcome and accomplished all prophecy. They would emphasize that the kingdom did, at least in some sense, begin with the incarnation. The kingdom has come. Jesus said, if I, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So they would say the messianic kingdom has in some sense arrived even before Jesus legally gets that paperwork in his hands. That would be their response. And, and it's a somewhat credible response. I think it's credible because I held to it for a while. Uh, but um, honestly, I think the more natural reading is to take the first seal as getting opened in 30 A.D., now, one of the things that led me previously to say that it was Augustus was that he was the first emperor. Um, he, he's pictured on a, on a coin as having a bow, you know. He rides on a, on a white horse. He's the first emperor to be given a crown. No Roman ruler before him had the crown. He was the beginner of the fake peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. He has the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so, and so there, there's this whole aspect that ties in nicely with Caesar Augustus. Well, the problem is the Greek word isn't diadema, the crown of royalty. It is Stephanos, the crown given to a general who is a conqueror. Okay? It's a unique crown that fits Tiberius better. He was the most famous Roman general, and he was crowned with a Stephanus crown by Augustus, while both were still alive. In fact, Tiberius was thought to be a rather odd duck because usually when a general was crowned, you know, he'd get this crown, he might wear it for an hour, and he'd take it off and put it up on a shelf or on his wall or something. Tiberius wore it all the time. And one of the reasons was he was superstitious. He thought that this would keep him from being struck by lightning and thunder. It protected him, he thought. So he's the only emperor we know of that nonstop wore a Stephanus crown all the time. Uh, one of the histories says Tiberius wore, um, Tiberius wore a laurel crown in the belief that it would protect him from lightning and thunder. So here's the question. What would immediately pop into the minds of John and of John's readers when he talks about an emperor who wears a Stephanus crown? Well, they would think, yeah, there's one emperor. He never took it off. Weird guy. He's the guy with the crown, right? That would be Tiberius. Verse 2 states that this person went out conquering and to conquer. Now, certainly Augustus expanded his empire hugely. There was an expansion. But who did the expanding for Augustus? It wasn't Augustus himself. It was Tiberius his general that went out onto the field, which is the implication of the word here, he went onto the field to do so. Not Augustus, but Tiberius. 
Tiberius was the true conqueror who was in the field and later became emperor. Though some of the other features of the four horsemen can be made to fit the chronology that starts with Augustus, they fit exceedingly well when you start with Tiberius, and I can't believe that I missed it before. It's amazing how your presuppositions, you know, you read a commentary and say, wow, that fits pretty nicely, and then you just don't think any further. You just read over the passages, and it was only when I started digging into the grammar that I began realizing, oh, wow, this is giving me heartburn. This is, this is not working well. And when I, when, it, when I says, let's just start with the text and forget about the interpretation that Tiberius uh, popped out so beautifully. Now, we'll look at the details when we go through each horseman in the future, but there is one more detail that rules out any of the horsemen being during the three-and-a-half-year war against Jerusalem, and that's the fifth seal. Take a look down there at verses 10 through 11. Verse 10 says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the clear implication is that God had not yet started to avenge these martyrs. And verse 11 confirms that. This can't be the seven-year war against Jerusalem because that seven-year war is God's avenging of the saints. He later makes that so abundantly clear, and all preterists agree on that. The seven-year war is the avenging of the saints. But look at verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. In other words, there's not going to be any judgment brought yet. Rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Well, that's a strong indication that verse 11 had to have occurred before the war against Jerusalem. Why? Because God's not answered their prayer in judging Israel. Their martyrdoms had to result in the judgment of Israel, and God wasn't prepared to do that yet. And that's confirmed by the historical sequence mentioned in the seventh seal in chapter 8, when the first trumpet sounds and judgments begin to fall on Jerusalem in the latter part of 66 AD. Now, I know that's a lot of detail to be given. Believe me, I have spared you. <laughs> I have spared you a humongous volume of a detail that, that I have uh, worked through, but I wanted to give you enough so that you wouldn't at least be confused by some of the excellent preterist commentaries that are out there, but who miss up on this point. Um, there is one more passage that many people try to relate to Revelation 6, and that is Zechariah chapter 6. There are enough similarities that many have thought that there is some dependence, but John has introduced enough differences that they're obviously different historical events. Let me read, um, let me read Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, and then I'm going to make a few concluding remarks. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth, and he called to me and spoke to me, saying, 
See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now, what are the similarities between Zechariah 6 and Revelation chapter 6? The only similarities between these two, both visions have horses. Three of the colors of the horses match, and they somehow relate to the pagan nations around Israel. The dissimilarities are much stronger. Zechariah has chariots. Revelation has no chariots. Second, Zechariah has, um, ha has more than one horse. It's horses, plural, more than one horse on each chariot. So that makes a minimum of eight horses, whereas Revelation has four horses. Third, no riders are mentioned in Zechariah, whereas the riders are emphasized in Revelation. Four, one of the colors is off, with Zechariah's being dappled, Revelation's fourth horse being pale, or as some translate it, being greenish. So there's different colors, and to me it's just quite obvious that, that Revelation is not slavishly copying Zechariah. There's just very deliberate differences between the two. Fifth, Zechariah's order of horses is different, red, black, white, and dappled, whereas Revelation changes that order to white, red, black, and green or pale. And the differences so outweigh the similarities. I don't think Zechariah 6 was strongly in the background. However, it does illustrate the fact that there are spiritual powers that are interested in pagan nations and that bring judgments on pagan nations. The chariot horses are said to be spirits of heaven in Zechariah 6, verse 5. And, of course, Daniel speaks of demonic princes that controlled strategic nations like Persia, Greece, and the kings of the north and of the south. And he also speaks of good angels who also are fighting in those regions and are assigned uh, to those regions, and they're bringing God's judgments. There are spiritual principalities and powers of heavenly places that stand behind the flesh and blood politics that we look at. Okay, so the fact that Zacharias's horse, horses and uh, chariots are called spirits lends credence to the fact that Revelation's horses and riders may be spirits too. And as we go through this book, we're going to be seeing how important it is to consider the spirits behind politics and not blindly support one political party. You may indeed be blindly supporting demonic spirits. Okay? In Ezekiel and Isaiah, God describes two different rulers who were controlled by demonic beings, and the passage alternates between addressing the king and addressing the demon manipulating the king. Well, Revelation does exactly the same thing. It calls Nero the beast. It's clearly referring to Nero as the beast, and yet, in other passages in Revelation, it speaks of the beast as being a demon who has ascended out of the bottomless pit. And uh, they are both addressed with the same language. But it is this background of the spirit world that Zechariah, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel describe that help us, I think, to interpret these four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you see them as only being emperors, I think you miss out on the enormous spiritual warfare that is going on, but if you see them as only being demons or angels, you fail to see the historical working out of these spiritual battles. Demons really do impact men and kingdoms. Real men are involved, and these horsemen do indeed describe real men as well as demons. Now, I should probably get into the debate. There is debate on whether amongst those who see these as being spiritual beings, there's debate on whether they're good angels or fallen angels, okay? Are they, 
elect angels or are they, they demons? Um, and, and, and there's background for both. You know, in Daniel, it spoke of demons who are behind um, emperors, but it also spoke of good angels like Michael the archangel, who was a prince in, uh, in um, uh, an empire as well. So you could, you could go in both directions. I'm not going to get into all of the details of exegesis today, but consider Revelation 6 and verse 8. And I, I want to ask the question of that verse. Is it really credible to say that God calls a good angel death and calls another angel who follows behind him Hades, or as some translate that as hell. The fourth horseman is named death, and he's got a partner named hell. It's a he, he's got a name. So it's a person, but this human person has two demons, I believe, who are involved in his life, death and hell. Anyway, those, I think, seem like names more appropriate to demonic forces. Uh, G.K. Beale has done a lot of work on this. He, uh, He's a recapitulationist and an idealist, but he's done more work on the Old Testament background to these passages than just about any. And here's what he says. As in chapter 6, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 7, the demonic agents of judgment are likened to horses prepared for battle, have something like crowns on their heads, and are addressed with an authorization clause that was given to them. The first rider represents a satanic force attempting to defeat and oppress believers spiritually through deception, persecution, or both. Now, I'm going to next week, Lord willing, deal with Bonson's arguments in favor of this being Jesus the Messiah, the first horse. And I think he's wrong on that, but I'm not going to get into that today. But Beale goes on to describe each of these demonic, uh, each of these four horsemen as being satanic forces seeking to influence things on earth. And one of the objections that people give, it says, well, God's authorizing them. God's calling them to come. Could, could God do that with demons? And the answer is, of course, yes. Beale gives all kinds of examples in the Bible where God uses demons as tools to accomplish his purpose. And I'll just give you one example in Revelation. Everybody agrees that the locusts that come out of the bottomless pit in chapter 9 of Revelation are wicked, evil demons, horrific demons, and yet God authorizes them. It uses the word authorize or gives them power. He authorizes them to do certain things that accomplish his judgments, and he forbids them from doing other things. And it's just very clear, sort of like in, in, in the book of Job. Did God authorize Satan to do certain things and say, you cannot touch him, you can touch him this far, but no further? Yes, he did. And there's many, many examples. In fact, I've got a, a book by uh, Duncan McKenzie that even though he doesn't deal with this passage in Revelation 6, he gives all kinds of examples in the Bible where God addresses a demon and a person at the same time and uh, shows how this really is uh, a credible interpretation. Well, if this is true, it is such an encouraging thought. It means that even Satan and Satan's human pawns are themselves pawns in God's hand. God tells them to come. God tells them to stop, and they have to stop. Nothing is outside of the control of God. God works even their in evil intentions together for the good of his people and for his own glory. Now, in future sermons, we're going to be seeing that all four emperors have different kinds of reigns, with Tiberius being the fiscal conservative and uh, Caligula being 
the, the rascal who absolutely bankrupts the empire, sort of like Obama uh, does today, and yet all four horsemen, whether they are the best horsemen or the worst horsemen fiscally, still embrace statism, still are evil, and still represent God's judgments upon a nation. He's not saying, I want you Christians, when you go out voting, I want you to opt for the fiscal conservative and just ignore all of the other things that they stand for. No. Having a fiscal conservative in America does not mean that God's wrath is removed if the president is still a statist moved by demons. Each horseman is a snapshot of statism that is a damning denunciation of modern messianic politics. Our fiscal conservative Republicans, not all of them, but many of the ones that people support, still engage in the same kind of murderous imperialism that Tiberius engaged in. And people say, yeah, but our nation's going to be destroyed if we don't vote for a fiscal conservative. No, you've got to look behind the scene. What is Satan trying to do, and what is God doing through these circumstances? Anyway, I think you'll find each section very relevant, interesting, and helpful in understanding what happens when God's laws do not govern a nation. Can the same demons or the same horsemen, can they afflict nations today? Absolutely yes. So this book gives us guidance on how to live when such demons run rampant in the nation. Now, I'm going to end very quickly with three more applications of what we've seen so far. The first is that Scripture is truth, and as such, it is perfectly systematized. There are no contradictions whatsoever in the Bible. Interpreters may contradict themselves, just like I contradicted my previous interpretation before, but God's Word never contradicts itself. Though sometimes people may have confusion about all the parts and pieces and how they fit together, we can have a confidence they do fit together. Usually the reason for our confusion, I think, is we've got false presuppositions. And if we start with the belief that the Bible is perfect, complete, self-interpreting, and that God commands us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's Matthew 4, verse 4, then we'll at least be committed to trying to figure out every word of Revelation. Hey, we've got decades to go. You can build on top of my exegesis and say, well, I don't agree with Phil on this point, you know. Uh, we're, 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 we're trying to work through and build on previous generations and what they have done. And honestly, some of the best work has been done in Revelation in the last 30 years. It's just phenomenal, the, the research that's been done. Now, I am not guaranteeing that I'm going to have the last word on every subject of the book of Revelation, but I am guaranteeing that every piece of the biblical puzzle does perfectly fit together. And if it doesn't fit, it's because our understanding is messed up. Okay. Second application I would make is that even our cursory overview of these chapters shows that God is a God of order even in history. When he says something is about to happen, as the Greek in chapter 6, verse 11, clearly, clearly says, it will happen shortly after John wrote that. The Bible is inerrant. It never makes mistakes. When John, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 15, speaks of things planned and, quote, prepared for the hour and day and month and year, hey, we can be assured that God's plans for America are timed perfectly. They're timed down to the hour and the day, okay? There is no need for being stressed out as if things are out of control. They may be out of control for the people who are trying to pull the strings and play God behind the scenes. They are not out of control for the true God. The third and final application is that whatever the confusion that people might have, 
There should be no confusion about the fact that God continues to be the judge in all the earth, in history, and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. It may look like rulers are getting away with things for a while, and they're just horrible, but God uses those rulers as his rod of discipline. These are the first of Christ's covenant lawsuits during the time of his kingdom, and so I think we can rejoice that just as the Caesars of Christ's day and John's day did not frustrate God's purposes, but rather were pawns in God's hand, the problem people of today are pawns in God's hand. They come and they go at God's command. With a sovereign who controls even the Caesars of the earth, we can entrust our lives with total confidence to God. May we do so. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the guidance that it gives to us. And we ask your forgiveness for the times that we uh, ourselves bring our presuppositions to your word and when we get confused. But we know, Father, that your Holy Spirit guides us into truth and we desire to know more and more of your word and to apply it better and better in society. And I pray that uh, in these coming weeks, you would guide us, you would direct us, you would bless us, give us great joy as we uh, see that you are the sovereign over all the earth and you have set your son upon his holy hill and that he is indeed advancing his kingdom and doing so invincibly. We bless you for the privilege that we have of being foot soldiers in your uh, kingdom and uh, we glory in this great privilege. Thank you now, in Jesus' name, amen.